0: Welcome to The Journal.A's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what exactly happened with the mother and baby home legislation? Since September, a row over the government's handling of records to do with the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation has been ongoing. It was a row with claim and counterclaim accusations from both sides of misinformation and disinformation, and a huge amount of anger and upset. There was a U-turn by the government, and in the end, a lot of people were just confused by it all. Unseal the Archive became a trending hashtag of a really popular campaign. Those backing it did not want to see Ireland hide away the past and the truth of these institutions. That's how we got here in the first place, they argued. They were even the words of Enda Kenny in 2017 when dealing as Taoiseach with one aspect of the inquiry, the tomb burial ground. Tomb is not just a burial ground, he told it all. It is a social and cultural sepulchre. As a society in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. No nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up, maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight in which the holier-than-thous were particularly fluent. Indeed, for a while it seemed as if in Ireland our women had the amazing capacity to self-impregnate. Those words, from Enda Kenny, were less than four years ago, March 2017. The Commission had been working for a number of years at that point, but following the revelations around the tomb burial ground, we were only scratching the surface of what we knew. And that's on an out loud, on a national conversation level, rather than the secretive village ones that had always gone on about Ireland's mother and baby homes and their relationship with the official mechanisms of the state. We've already had investigations into the Magdalen laundries and the abuses that prevailed in other institutions, but there's still more to find out. The Commission's report is due for publication in the coming weeks or months, but before that can happen, the huge amount of records it has amassed have to be dealt with. And that's what led us to here. So what exactly happened? To help us wade through this pretty complex topic in the in-depth manner it needs, I'm joined by Dr Maeve Rourke, who's a lecturer in human rights at NUI Galway, and she's co-director of the Klan Project. Later, I'll be talking to Simon McGar, solicitor and director of Data Compliance Europe. And joining me now is Orla Ryan, who has done a huge amount of work for the journal on this topic. Thanks so much for joining me. And Orla, I'm going to start with the row first. What exactly happened from September?
1: So the Commission of Inquiry that was examining mother and baby homes amassed tens of thousands of records in the last five years. These records include the personal testimony of survivors, as well as documents from religious orders and local authorities that shed light on how the homes were run. Prior to the Commission submitting its final report at the end of October, the Government said it needed to pass legislation that would allow for the transfer of a database of records from the Commission to Tusla, the Child and Family Agency. When questioned of the need for the legislation, Minister Roderick O'Gorman said that earlier this year the Commission told his department it didn't think it had the legal basis to transfer that database, meaning the records in it could end up being destroyed. The government also maintained that it was legally bound to seal the remaining records for 30 years, citing the 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act. Several legal experts disagreed with the government's interpretation of the 2004 Act, saying it was superseded by GDPR, which came into effect in 2018, and gave people the right to access their own information. So the bill that was passed in the Dáil last month didn't specifically deal with sealing the records. However, many survivors and campaigners said it was a missed opportunity to clarify that the records would not be sealed and was, in their view, part of a wider policy of secrecy that has been adopted by successive governments. The plan to seal the records for 30 years resulted in a lot of public anger and a petition calling for the government to not seal the records was signed by about 200,000 people. After an intervention by the Data Protection Commissioner, who said sealing the records would be illegal, the government later clarified that people were, in fact, entitled to request access to their personal records under GDPR. However, people may still be refused access to certain information and the government said their U-turn will address some concerns, but won't solve everything. And it has committed to bringing in new information and tracing legislation that will help people access records in the future.
0: Uh, Maeve, I'm going to go back to basics uh, with you first, because as I mentioned there, there, there have been a lot of institutions that Ireland has to, has had to grapple with in the, in the last few years. So what exactly was a mother and baby home?
2: Okay, well, there were 14 mother and baby homes in Ireland and they are under investigation by this Commission of Investigation along with what's called a representative sample of four county homes. So mother and baby homes were institutions which were funded by the Irish state and run by a combination of religious and state bodies. And essentially they were the Irish state's only provision, along with county homes for women who became pregnant outside marriage, until our very first piece of social welfare legislation in 1973 to provide any kind of financial support to um, unmarried mothers. So the state paid essentially for women to be incarcerated from the foundation of our state, right through to the latter part of the 20th century, Many women incarcerated, uh, that's the evidence that we have to date, and separated from their children through mother and baby homes and through a wider network of institutions, private adoption agencies, private nursing homes, maternity hospitals, and um, to the extent that in 1967, Lindsay Erner has found that 97% of children born outside marriage were adopted.
0: What was life at the the mother and baby home like? What happened there? When did people, so obviously it was, pregnant women in the main who went in when in their pregnancy did they usually go in when did they leave um, and what was their experience within them like
2: we're going to find out a lot more of this type of information from the commission's report but what i know um, comes from my work on the clan project which uh, assisted people who wanted to give a full witness statement drafted by a solicitor to the commission of investigation and we gathered over 80 statements but they were from a combination of women who'd had children and had them taken away and adopted people in terms of when a woman went in i couldn't say for sure it seems to me that uh, several months possibly when women began to look pregnant and people might notice troublingly extremely troublingly uh, women were also repatriated from abroad from england into mother and baby homes as well. So how women came in to mother and baby homes seems to have been through a combination of state forces, religious family members, um, or themselves realizing there was absolutely no support for them once they became pregnant outside marriage and they literally had no other option. Um, Women often seem to have stayed in mother and baby homes for years, uh, which is part of the absolute cruelty that so many experienced. Some stayed for weeks, some stayed for months, but some absolutely stayed for years. And like I said, the evidence is that many women were actually incarcerated, and we certainly took witness statements of women being incarcerated in the ni- late 1960s. And their treatment, women frequently speak to terrible medical neglect. We know that in mother and baby homes, a lot of babies died as well. Um, some women also died, and we have a lot of unmarked graves around Ireland. A lot of the conditions seem to have been quite similar to Magdalene Laundries, in the sense of there being a lot of verbal denigration, uh, psychological abuse, forced labour, both during um, until you gave birth and afterwards, and general neglect uh, and denial of identity, not to mention the fact of being separated from your child and there seems in many mother and baby homes to have been a situation where women weren't really allowed to look after their children um, normally or properly separated from them during the day only now to feed them um, at specific times sometimes not allowed to feed their own child and then of course there was a widespread forced separation uh, between the mothers and the children
0: You mentioned the Magdalene laundries there. What was the or is there a difference or what was the difference between a mother and baby home and a Magdalene laundry?
2: This is something that's frequently mixed up, even in mainstream media. So Magdalene laundries were not places where babies were born. Magdalene laundries were certainly part of the system of forced family separation in the sense that A number of mother and baby homes seem to have transferred women from mother and baby homes into Magellan Laundries for essentially indefinite detention. Certainly in Galway and in law, we see that there was a legal basis for the detention of so-called second time offenders, that is women who had given birth twice outside marriage, that they would be indefinitely detained in a Magdalene laundry. Um, Magdalene laundries were places, like I say, where there were no babies and where girls and women were incarcerated for a number of reasons, not correct reasons, but for a number of reasons such as sexual abuse as a child having grown up in the care of the church and state and the nuns deciding that you needed to be incarcerated as a teenager in a Magdalene Laundry in order to prevent you becoming pregnant outside marriage also um, women and girls who had intellectual disabilities were often incarcerated in Magdalene Laundries and paid for by the state Um, so there was a range of reasons and detention was for many women in Magdalene Laundries years or even lifelong Whereas mother and baby homes um, and county homes, which, as I said, also operated in a similar manner, detaining uh, pregnant women. You know, incarceration for most seems to have ended within a number of years, if not sooner. Although we definitely have also come across situations where women whose children were taken from them in mother and baby homes may have ended up staying on as unpaid labor.
0: So there are a sample of county homes, uh, part of the remit of the Commission of Investigation. What was the difference between a county home?
2: County homes were operated by the state, by the local authorities, and they are the um, successor to workhouses. And so they didn't just incarcerate or institutionalise um, pregnant women. There might have been a section of the county home where pregnant women were Held or institutionalized, and we know from some survivors that often the women who were pregnant in county homes were also used as unpaid labor around the county home in general because it was a place for the relief of the poor, and um, quote unquote, uh, generally speaking.
0: In terms of the incarceration at mother and baby homes uh, that you speak of, what were the practicalities of that? Could women leave? Um, was it just the that they weren't? Were they physically restrained from leaving, or was there no option for them to do so? Were Were they brought back? I know in Magdalene laundries, there's a lot of evidence of women being brought back, say by Gardie or or other uh, people in the in the vicinity if they tried to leave. Was it the same or similar in mother and baby homes?
2: It seems to have been quite similar. So, you can read, anybody can read the final report of the clan project. It's 150 pages long. It's on clan, project.org where we summarize the contents of the witness statements that were gathered by the international law firm Hope and Lovells. Um, and certainly, we've taken statements which speak to returns by the Gardi when or if women managed to escape. We know from Philomena Lee, for example, whose real-life story, of course, was made into a Hollywood movie. Doors were locked. Like I say, guardy returned escapees. Women speak to that. And um, June Goulding's book, The Light in the Window, uh, certainly speaks to doors being locked um, and women not being able to get out. Um also to the option of women's families. And she writes from the 1950s, I think it was 1951, that she was a brand new junior midwife in Vespera. And she speaks to the fact that if a family paid £100, the girl might be let out of the mother and baby home.
0: And obviously I mentioned the Ender Kenny speech at the start. Um, he talked about families giving the, their young daughters uh, to the nuns. So a lot of people were put into these situations by their own families. Absolutely. It
2: seems like there were any number of ways that someone might end up in one of these institutions.
0: I mentioned Enda Kenny's words there from 2017 about Tum, but what exactly did we find out about Tum and when?
2: So in 2014, as far as I recall, that was when Catherine Corliss's local history work came to light and caused such a furore in the national and international media, where she had wondered where the children who had died in the tomb, mother and baby home, were buried and had gathered um, around 800 death certificates for which she could not find a burial site. And that, of course, was the news scandal that led to the government actually setting up the commission to inquire into the mother and baby homes um and now of course that was not the state's first knowledge of the fact that mortality rates were huge in some mother and baby homes that we had a system of generally forced adoption during the 20th century um but nonetheless as we know it often takes a huge media scandal for the state to act and for the government to act uh, what happened in 2017 again as far as i remember was that um i suppose catherine corliss's work was then taken up and investigated by um, the commission and this was when a group of experts actually did open up that site um, in the grounds of the mother and baby home and tomb and found that yes there were remains in a disused um, septic tank in a part of it and then we had an interim report the fifth interim report of the commission of investigation last year in april Um, 2019, that dealt with questions of burials and also the use of infants' bodies for medical experimentation.
0: Well, I'm going to go to you just to go back to the creation of the commission investigation. What exactly was its remit to look at? When was it set up and what was its main task?
1: Yeah, the Commission was established in 2015 to inquire into the treatment of women and children in 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes between 1922 and 1998. Among the homes being looked at were the Bonscores home in Tuam, which we've discussed, the Besper House in Cork, Sean Ross Abbey in Tipperary and St Patrick's home on the Navan Road in Dublin. The Commission was chaired by Miss Justice Yvonne Murphy. People may remember her name. She's the former judge who also chaired commissions into child sex abuse in the Catholic Church, which resulted in the publication of the Murphy Report and the Cloyne Report. And the Commission itself was tasked with examining a number of issues, such as how women and children entered and left the homes, their treatment while in the homes, living conditions, burial practices, post-mortem practices, and the prevalence of abuse, forced labour, forced adoptions, forced participation in vaccine trials, and the provision of bodies of residents who died for medical research.
0: And as we've talked about there, Tuam was part of this and that the excavations happened. Can you tell us a little bit more about the discoveries there?
1: Yeah, Excavations carried out at the site in tomb in late 2016 and early 2017 found a significant quantity of human remains aged from 35 fetal weeks to 3 years. They were interred in a vault on the site, something that was confirmed by the then Children's Minister Catherine Zappone. Um, She described the discovery at the time as very sad and disturbing. And earlier you mentioned Enda Kenny's famous speech in the Doll in March 2017, where he described the burial site as a chamber of horrors and he commended Catherine Corliss for her work and said he wanted to be the Taoiseach to once and for all deal with the sad legacies of the past.
0: What other processes? They were kind of the headline grabbing ones, but what other processes um, have the commission used? Who do they end up speaking to? What sources were examined? How did it do its work?
1: Yeah, the Commission carried out its work in a number of ways through interviews with survivors and other relevant parties, written submissions and documents and records provided by relevant authorities, local councils and religious orders. The Commission itself was originally due to report within three years but received a number of extensions and the final deadline was last Friday the 30th of October when the report was submitted to government. Over the last few years, the Commission has produced seven interim reports and they contained updates on its work and some of the difficulties it was encountering when carrying out its research and why they needed extensions. Um, Maeve has mentioned the fifth interim interim report um, published last year, which noted some of the difficulties the Commission had in getting records related to burial practices at homes in Bessborough and Toome in particular. Um, so um, there were a number of delays um, throughout the Commission's work and, that, and that's why those um, extensions were granted and um, the seventh interim report published in June of this year sought a final extension until last month and part of that was due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on its work.
0: The difficulties in getting those burial records was that because people didn't want to the institutions didn't want to give them up or were they not available were they destroyed do we know?
1: A lot of the times um, they were saying that apparently the records didn't exist and in that fifth interim report the commission expressed some surprise at um, the fact that certain religious orders or county councils didn't have records, it assumed they would have. So it seemed that in some instances at least the records themselves didn't exist but the commission actually said they didn't know how they could not have existed or you know had they been lost along the way. But there was definitely some records that seemed to never exist or they certainly didn't exist in the last few years when the Commission went looking for them.
0: So we know the Commission spoke to hundreds of people obtained thousands, tens of thousands of records. And that's kind of where the controversy surrounding uh, the current state of play takes us. Um, talk us through the legislation the government put to the doll um, in September, uh, which kind of kicked off why exactly we're here on The Explainer today.
1: Yeah, so the bill that everyone's been hearing about in the last few weeks led to uh, very heated debates in both the Dáil and the Shannon and the media and on social media. Um, the government approved the text of the bill um, a couple of months ago which it said was needed to safeguard the records after the Commission finished its work. The legislation allows for the transfer of a database of 60,000 records compiled by the Commission to Tusla, the Child and Family Agency. Many survivors and legal experts expressed anger at the bill. Opposition TD said the legislation was pushed through without proper pre legislative scrutiny and none of their amendments were accepted during a number of emotional debates where the powerful testimonies of survivors were read into the Dahl and Shannon record. When he was questioned about the need for the legislation and why it was being pushed through so quickly, Roderick O'Gorman said that earlier this year, the commission told the department it didn't think it had the legal basis to transfer the database, meaning that the records could end up being destroyed. So a number of debates in the Iraq. after a number of debates in the Oireachtas, um the government didn't take on any opposition amendments, but it introduced two amendments themselves. Number one, to ensure that the minister received a full copy of the commission's entire archive, including a copy of the part of the archive that is sent to Tusla, and to allow the commission to continue to operate until February 2021, so that it can contact all those who gave evidence um, and find out if they would like their personal data to be redacted from the archive prior to it being sent to the Minister.
0: The, there was mention of a 2004 Act a lot during that debate. Can you tell us what that Act was and wh- what was the reason for that 2004 Act?
1: Yeah, so the, the government initially maintained that under the 2004 Act um, under which the Commission operated that it was legally obliged to seal the records um, in an archive held by the Department for 30 years before transferring them to the National Archives. However, a number of legal experts disputed this interpretation of the Act. So the 2004 Act itself doesn't say that documents need to be sealed away. It says that 30 years after a commission is dissolved, the records go to the National Archives. Um, But Roderick O'Gorman said last month that the entire premise of the 2004 Act is that investigations are held in private. However, this was also disputed. The Minister said that some people only gave evidence because they were told it would be entirely confidential and not made public. And while this may have been true, in some cases, other people who gave evidence wanted public hearings to be held and for their stories to be public, but were not given this option. Philomena Lee, who was mentioned earlier, is a famous example of this. Roderick O'Gorman also said the Attorney General's Office had advised his department that an amendment to the 2004 Act, which was put in place following the introduction of GDPR in 2018, effectively prevented survivors from accessing their personal records. However, again, a number of legal experts, including Maeve, disputed this stance, saying that not allowing people to access their records would put Ireland at odds with the EU regulation and in somewhat unusual circumstances, and while the Minister was addressing the Shannon a couple of weeks ago, the Irish Examiner broke the story that the Data Protection Commissioner disagreed with the government's view and said the government would be breaking the law if it sealed the records for 30 years. So this was then put to um, Orgorman as it was breaking and he himself said he accepted there would be legal challenges to a blanket ban on granting access to records and that he would need to further discuss the issue with the Attorney General and of course a few days after that the government backtracked and um, last week issued a statement saying that the Department of Children and Tusla would engage with the Data Protection Commissioner to ensure that people could access their own personal information as set out under GDPR, and that they would put additional resources in place to make sure that this happened.
0: Maeve, one of the arguments, one of the lines of arguments that used is the 2004 Act was required so that commissions of investigation could go about their business in an efficient and effective manner in a way that tribunals can't, because tribunals get caught up in legal challenges, in uh, everybody having to have legal council and um, everybody having to have various rights that commissions of investigations don't require the same level of is that the understanding of why it, the commission was set up under the 2004 act and um, why it was able to work so quickly
2: I think people uh, aren't reading the 2004 act properly but there's certainly They're certainly um, right, I think, in saying that, yes, it was designed to be an alternative to a tribunal, but it wasn't actually designed to be a completely secret alternative to a tribunal, and it definitely could be a better piece of legislation and we absolutely you know, in the near future, once these issues are of access to information or dealt with, we do need to look at proper legislation for inquiries, particularly inquiries that um involve allegations of gross and systematic human rights violations because People actually have rights that are very clear under the European Convention on Human Rights which of course is incorporated into Irish law and every Irish state body has to apply it. They have rights if they are victims of alleged torture or ill treatment or arbitrary detention or death in unexplained circumstances to actually participate in an inquiry, not just to be treated as a witness who gives their evidence and has to go away actually to have access to the substance of the evidence being considered so that they can make comment and actually section 12 of the 2004 commissions of investigation act says i'm going to read it a commission shall disclose to a person who's directed to attend as a witness or who attends voluntarily or about whom evidence is given they shall disclose the substance of any evidence in its possession that in its opinion, the person should be aware of for the purposes of evidence that person may give or has given to the commission. And it says in section 12, a commission shall give a person to whom it discloses the substance of the evidence, uh, as aforementioned, an opportunity to comment by written or oral submissions on the evidence. And the only exception to this obligation to give the evidence that in the commission's opinion a person should have when they're appearing as a witness, the only exception is that the source does not have to be disclosed if in the commission's opinion um, it wouldn't be in the interests of the investigation or in the interest of fair procedures uh, to disclose the source.
0: In terms of the records that survivors want, Maeve, what do they want access to?
2: So most obviously people want access to information about themselves and disappeared family members so there are people who are still searching for the graves and um, and even for information about the fate uh, whether someone is alive or dead the fate of their relatives and um, so there are relatives who will want to be able to access and have wanted to be able to access for a very long time any information about their relative in particular but also about how an institution was run what where was its burial grounds how how was it managed and and then of course people are looking for information about themselves Uh, mothers whose children were taken are looking for information about how they were treated perhaps correspondences about them and and of course how their institution in which they were incarcerated was operated again Um, information about you know whether You know, what is the documentation around their separation from their child? And adopted people, of course, are looking for information about their own identity and what were the circumstances of their separation from their mother and from their wider family. But people are definitely looking for records as well, just about how these institutions were run, how vaccine trials were operated, how it was allowed to happen who knew what who authorized what so one of the issues that i've been raising the last few weeks is that actually what's in this archive is not just personal data but it's also administrative files that have crucial relevance to people who are affected by the abuses that happened and again these are the types of files that actually should have been available to people affected as the inquiry proceeded. And they are the type of files that actually we see in inquiries in Scotland and in England into historical child sex abuse, for example, in institutions, the people affected have access to these administrative files that show, you know, what people knew, who knew what, who authorized what, because all of that is very important to understanding how these abuses can be prevented in the future. So in addition to that, then there's testimony people are entitled to, and many would like to have a copy of their transcript of evidence. And that was one of the pieces um, of the archive that was under, according to the minister until the government changed its mind, that was one part of the archive that was going to be, quote unquote, sealed. Orla, in
0: terms of what the government has said now, what information will still remain private and how... When we're talking about access to records, is it just survivors and people who are impacted by these situations that will be able to access them or will there be greater access
1: by members of the public or journalists? Yeah, so um, one of the amendments that was um, put forward to the recent legislation in the Dáil is to extend the Commission's work until February so that they can write to all those who gave evidence and ask them if they want any of their personal data redacted from the archive before it's given to the Minister. So in terms of other people um, requesting access, the government has um, promised to set up a national archive that would look into um, abuse and trauma in the 20th century. ireland so broader than just the um the mother and baby homes but looking at Magdalen laundries and, and other um institutions where abuse happened so when that is set up there would be a way for the media or um academics to um to access data but i suppose that's slightly up in the air now in terms of who can access data so further down the line the plan would be that some researchers would be able to access some of the data
2: yeah i think Unfortunately, during the debates on the bill over the past few weeks, there was an idea put out that, you know, researchers, academics want access to people's personal testimony. And this this is why the amendment was put down to allow the commission to ask people whether they want their personal data redacted. But it was never the case. I mean, the GDPR prohibits, of course, the publication of people's personal data if they're a survivor of abuse without their consent. And this amendment was quite strange because it was put in before there was an acknowledgement that, of course, the GDPR in its entirety applies to the minister when he receives the archive. And of course, he will have to uh, protect the privacy rights of anybody who suffered abuse. So what this amendment now does is, it takes one tiny part of GDPR rights, which is the right to request erasure, and um, or to object to processing. And, and it is asking the commission to write to people, but it doesn't ask them to give them a copy of their transcript. And of course, it was amended before there was a recognition that people have a right to the transcript. So it was as if the commission was going to write to people and say, hello, we have your data. Would you like it redacted? But we can't give you a copy anyway we are where we are the point is that i do believe someone somewhere has put out the suggestion that unsealing means publishing everything in the archive and like there's some kind of extreme to the extreme that either you have to seal everything or you unseal everything and like publishing everything in that archive was never ever ever what any of us who were working on this as academics or as advocates wanted Um, and it would never be permitted under, under the gdpr anyway so when we look at international examples if we look for example the stasi records act or how abuse archives are dealt with in other countries like australia canada again scotland england There's a gradated approach so people who are affected have access to the maximum amount of information they possibly can have and we take into account that their personal data includes what other people did to them and their family relationships, for example, whereas public access will always be more restricted and will mainly be focused on administrative files that can of course be anonymized as necessary but that goes to how institutions were run and how the system was run and also voluntarily given testimony because there are some people who wish to donate it to the public record. I think this is
0: a good point to bring in Simon McGar, who is a solicitor and expert in GDPR and director of Data Compliance Europe. I spoke to him earlier and my first question to him was, what was the department's original position in terms of GDPR and these records?
3: The department's position was, and I use the the phrase the department because it did seem to be it emanated eventually, it turned out from the department and not from the attorney general, which the minister had initially represented as coming from. The department's position was that they had a piece of pre-existing Irish legislation and they were saying that that legislation prohibited the application of the GDPR to the records in relation to the archive that the minister was going to take uh, possession of once the commission had finished its job.
0: And when or why or how did their position change?
3: Once the argument had been made that their position wasn't legally valid, it turned out that the, the department and the minister didn't really have an answer to that. They continued to assert that uh, section 39 of the Commissions of Inquiry Act prohibited it. They expanded on that later once they'd done a bit more work and they said, well, we were given an update which incorporated the GDPR and also prohibited it from applying to these records in the 2018 Data Protection Act. That's section 198. However, Neither of those answers dealt with the core question: that Irish law can't restrict the provision of the GDPR or the rights that you have available under the GDPR. That's just not something that can be done because the GDPR is EU law, and EU law derived from the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So it goes right to the Treaty, the very heart of EU law, and it's uh, and as EU law, it's superior to national legislation. Otherwise, and this makes sense, countries could just pass local laws exempting themselves from various bits of EU law they didn't like. Which
0: uh, obviously, through Brexit, we we know a lot about. So can we be crystal clear on what the current government position is?
3: Yes, it seems through reporting, it seems that we've learned that the minister went to cabinet with a briefing note which repeated this position, uh, ascribing it to the attorney general. And at cabinet, the attorney general said, that's not my position. And so the Attorney General then said that he had not been asked for advice specifically on GDPR. He then gave advice to the minister, and the minister tells us what that advice is. That's the only way we can learn it. We never learn anything directly from the AG. And that advice is that the GDPR does apply and that people may make access requests for their records. However, their position is that they are subject to separate tests which have to run one after the other the first test is that people uh, who make requests those requests will be considered in the light of the rights and freedoms of third parties of other people and that is a uh, requ- a test that is part of the gdpr though the state has never to date properly applied it in respect of adopted people's records nonetheless that is a legitimate test the second test is that the uh, the consideration will have to be given to this piece of legislation, section 39, and that initially the minister said that applicants would have to prove that what they were asking would never affect the operation of a future hypothetical commission or equally hypothetical future witness statements. Now, that's impossible. And so that was... uh, challenged immediately, and the minister immediately issued a clarification where he said that wouldn't be the case, but that now we would be for the department to prove that it would cause trouble. Nonetheless, whether the department has to prove it or the individual doesn't really matter. The key issue is that Section 39 isn't a legal basis on which you can restrict uh, your Article 15 data subject access rights because it doesn't meet the requirements under EU law For a restriction.
0: What would meet those requirements for restriction if I went um, and asked for uh, information about myself uh, through GDPR legislation? In what way could a department say no, correctly say no, you're not entitled to that?
3: Well, if they wanted to pass a law, they would have to look at the list of laws, legal bases that you could say the law is here to protect the following thing. And there's a list, a laundry list of them in Article 23 of the GDPR so first of all if you're not on the list then you're not one of the applicable bases in which you can restrict the gdpr and uh, section 39 isn't on the list the stated basis to protect future hypothetical commissions uh, isn't one of those uh, isn't one of those legal bases the other issue is that any restriction in respect of the gdpr uh, is invalid if it goes to what's known as the essence of a right if it prevents it entirely from being operated. So obviously a blanket prohibition, that's to the essence of the right, that's not permitted. But the re- the effect of that would be that if you did, could not access these uh, documents as a result of Section 39, and as a result that you would die before the 30-year seal was, was opened, then you would have had a restriction on the essence of the right. So it would be illegal because it is uh, a restriction on the essence of the right. It's then secondly illegal because it's not one of the stated bases on which you can restrict uh, access. And then finally, even if it met those first two, it doesn't meet the requirements of the third section, Article 18.2, which is that any legislation that purports to restrict, even on a legitimate basis, must meet certain criteria, and it lists the criteria. And the 2004 Act, you'll be unsurprised to hear, didn't anticipate the uh, 2018 GDPR criteria and therefore does not have them. And even if we are to concede the point, which we do not, that it is uh, not a restriction of the essence of the right and it did uh, use one of the legal bases that was in Article 23, it still wouldn't be valid because it doesn't have the laundry list of requirements to make it valid.
0: One of the arguments made um, for these records being kept sealed or being kept as confidential as possible is that a lot of people gave evidence to the commission on the basis that their evidence um, or their identities would never become known to anybody. Is there anything in this GDPR handling of records that would um, remove that right to privacy or that confidentiality of any of the people who gave evidence to the commission of investigation?
3: But there's a couple of layers to that. First of all, there's the question, was that uh, promise of confidentiality in line with EU law? So if it wasn't, then nobody had the power to make it and it's not legally valid. But let's leave that aside. The next question is, well, let's imagine that people were given a promise of confidentiality and that it was valid because it would impinge upon their rights and freedoms to have their information released. Well, the balancing test there is such that the entity that's attempting to redact information on that basis has to demonstrate it so the the burden of proof is on them to demonstrate that there is such a thing that there is such a a fear on behalf of the person and let us not forget that everybody who has given evidence has been given the opportunity between now and february to say i wish to have my name redacted from my evidence so that by the time the the uh, archive travels to the minister from the commission that procedure will already have worked its way through the records and as a result i don't see how the minister can argue that given an opportunity to redact people didn't but at some in some level that he ought to impose additional redactions not asked for by the individual
0: and that was simon mcgar or i'm going to go back to you now because at this point we know the legislation has passed michael d higgins signed it into law but at that point he did make a statement on the matter what did he say
1: Yeah, In a somewhat unusual intervention, when announcing that he had signed the bill into law, um, President Higgins noted that it would be open to future legal challenges. So under the Irish Constitution, the President can consult with the Council of State and decide to refer any bill to the Supreme Court if it raises a constitutional issue under Article 26.1.1. In the statement issued last month, President Higgins said that when considering any piece of legislation, he has to be aware of the fact that no court can question the validity of any legislation following a referral by the president for the Supreme Court. He said his decision to sign the legislation leaves it open to any citizen to challenge the provisions of the bill in the future. So basically he was saying if he did send it to the Supreme Court, um, no future legal challenges could be taken against it, but it was quite unusual for him to say by the way, people can legally challenge this. That's a rare thing for the president to put into a statement.
0: Yeah, I think there's a general understanding that it probably won't be unconstitutional, but it was Michael D. Higgins kind of framing it as I'm aware of of the heartache that this has caused.
1: Yeah, he did did say in the statement that he had been, you know, um, following the debate closely and he was aware of the issues and some of the very valid concerns people had about right to accessing their own personal information. So I suppose it was he can't really say too much in his in his capacity as the president, but it was his way of saying he had been keeping an eye on the debate. And, you know, he perhaps didn't agree with certain elements of the legislation, but without outwardly saying that.
0: Maeve, what have the people who have experience of these homes, be it as children or as mothers, what have they said um, in response to the passing of this legislation?
2: Well, I think they're extremely nervous and sceptical of whether the GDPR will ever actually be interpreted properly and applied properly. So it's worth saying that, you know, the people who are affected um, by the secrecy, they knew exactly what was going on here. Yes, this legislation wasn't the thing that was sealing records. It was the minister was saying we have to bring in this legislation because everything I receive is going to be sealed. Therefore, I'm doing you all a favor by sending some of the archives to Tulsa. People have been experiencing the secrecy for decades. So yes, they heard the minister when he said everything I receive is going to be sealed and I'm doing you a favor by sending some material to Tulsa. Number one. They know that if the minister has the entire archive, he should be providing everything he has that belongs to them to them. And so it was their right to say, you can't seal everything that you get. Number two, Tuzla um, has been seriously criticized by people who are affected um, for terribly interpreting the GDPR. And this is something that the collaborative forum of former residents of mother and baby homes who were independently appointed and established by the former Minister for Children, Catherine Zapone, this is what they have been telling the Department of Children uh, for years, that unfortunately, TOSLA interprets the GDPR incorrectly. It seems to understand, and that it should redact the names and the details of the actions of every single person on your records that isn't you. Therefore, not understanding the fact that personal data includes mixed data, which involves more than one person at the same time and belongs to more than one person at the same time, just like you or I would get our medical records with the doctor's name on, with the details of what the doctor prescribed for us or did, to us in surgery, that is our data, as well as being the doctor's data. But unfortunately, it also takes a blanket approach to redacting all details of anybody who is not the person seeking their data. Not to mention the fact that it also um, says, and it has said, to the Collaborative Forum, and it has also said publicly, that it risk assesses all adopted people for the harm that they might cause to their extended natural family, even if their parents are dead, before they can ever consider releasing someone's name to them, even though birth certificates are public documents. Um, that is the approach. So there's a lot of weariness. There's a lot of, unfortunately, distrust, scepticism.
0: Going back to the Commission of Investigation report, Orla, one of the things we know is that it's going to be extremely long. We've been told multiple times it's going to be 4,000 pages um, at least. What's the timeline for publication? Um, when will we see that final report?
1: We don't know is the short answer, but the government has said it wants to publish the report as soon as possible. Some people have said it could be late this year, it's more likely to be early next year, but it's not entirely clear. The report has to be examined by Minister Roderick O'Gorman and the Department of Children and the Attorney General before it's published. And the report could lead to criminal proceedings in some cases, so some of it may need to be redacted. So that all needs to be decided before it's published. And ahead of the publication of the report, the government has committed to do a number of things. It said it will establish a national archive of records related to institutional trauma during the 20th century. So going beyond the mother and baby homes and looking at other institutions as well. Um, some survivors have called for this archive to be developed at a site on Sean McDermott Street in Dublin where the last Magdalen Laundry closed in 1996. But other survivors are against this idea or against at least against it happening without extensive consultation on what it would include, its location and how it would be operated. They want to be given time to digest what's in the report and in their own words heal as best they can before any such consultation would begin. The government also plans to advance its work on information and tracing legislation with a view to publish this next year. And This legislation will be aimed at making it easier for adopted people to access personal information. And As we've heard, there are previous attempts at implementing such legislation stalled amid a difficulty reaching a consensus on a person's right to information versus a person's right to privacy. And in the statement uh, last week the government also committed to urgently proceeding legislation that would provide for a sensitive and appropriate burial site at the former um, mother and baby home in Toome and other sites where it is appropriate. When the report is published, it's likely to call for a number of things, including a state apology, financial compensation for survivors and the provision of mental health supports and other supports for survivors. The HSE has already committed to expedite implementation of the provision of mental health supports survivors, and that was announced in the government statement last week as well. And Maeve, what do the survivors want from this report?
2: Well, like I said, uh, throughout this podcast and the reason for my work over the last few weeks is the primary thing I understand people want is information. I mean, there is no point in prescribing counseling or, you know, financial payments without the information that people need to piece their own lives and their family histories together so they have to come together the apology payments um, which are invariably totally limited compared to the enormity of the abuse suffered um, other measures they must have integrity and they only can do that when people have access to the information that they need and they don't feel that the state is still trying to hide anything from them That makes sense thanks so much
0: orla and mae for explaining all of that to us today and we will be back with another podcast i'm sure when the report is actually published in the coming months thank you for listening to the explainer and a big thank you to maeve simon and orla for all of their work on this episode if you read the journal you may have seen our appeal in the last few months for you to support our journalism It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues have fallen drastically during the COVID pandemic, but we are and want to keep providing you with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you know it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. We now have options for you to do just that. And if it's something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Eva Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.